Well, as we get started tonight, um, I want to take just a couple minutes to kind of rem- uh, explain or remind or introduce the kind of what we're about on Wednesday night with this particular uh, Bible study. I kind of share my vision and hope for it, um, partly because then I hope that you will in turn share that vision with not only yourself, but with others, um, because we intentionally uh, structure this Bible study to be very friendly for you to invite people who might otherwise be afraid of Bible studies or uncomfortable in uh, a Bible study kind of setting. But just to kind of give you a little background of why and what we try and do here <clears throat> with this particular study, I want to turn to uh, a passage in Ephesians 4 that I've shared on Sunday mornings before. And it's where Paul is writing about um, kind of the purpose, if you will, for having pastors and teachers. And he says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And as I look at that, Paul describes sort of four distinct areas of the things that we're supposed to be teaching as a church or talking about as a church. Uh, and he talks about... Uh, the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, spiritual maturity, mature manhood, and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so this study, really I try to emphasize um, two of those, which is knowledge of the Son of God. This looks like we might have some action going on tonight. Ah, the elevator, yeah. Yeah, okay. Whoops. So knowledge of the Son of God. We, I want us to really know Jesus, not just know facts about him. Uh, and then the part about knowing the, you know, the, the, me, to the attaining to the measure, the stature, or the fullness of Christ. And how do we know that we've gotten there? How do we know what the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ is if we don't really study him and see him and hear him? In action, and so part of uh, the emphasis or my focus on Wednesday nights is really to look at these two areas to make sure that we're not just people who talk about Jesus in a abstract and a theological sense, but don't really know him very well, but that we know him well. This is part of why I think it's important that we, as part of our regular Bible reading, we incorporate the Gospels uh, as a regular element that shows up in our Bible reading, so that we can. We can really see Jesus, right? All parts of Scripture are important. All parts of Scripture are inspired by the Holy Spirit, absolutely. All parts critical. But the Gospels, in one sense, are very special because they really let us just see Jesus in action, hear his words, uh, frequently see him interacting with people. There's a lot we can draw from that in terms of how do we grow into the measure of the stature of Christ, as Paul calls us to be. And what we try to make here for this particular study is really be a place for students at all levels of Bible study. So if you've been studying the Bible for decades, uh, 
Or if you've got a neighbor who's, you know, either a Christian but afraid to go to a Bible study because they're afraid that someone's going to call on them and they'll realize they don't know anything, and then people will realize you don't know anything about the Bible because you're a new Christian. Or, or whether you're a non-believer but you're kind of interested in Jesus, you want to know more about him. We want this to be a place where we can gather together and study the Word and that people feel very comfortable inviting friends, inviting neighbors, inviting other people in the church to come and get involved and get involved in building up. Um, again, structurally, it's a little different from the way our church typically does a Bible study where it's you know, a small group, there's always a good bit of homework, uh, a lot of freewheeling discussion, and that's great. And, and I do encourage you to ask me questions along the way. Um, but no prior knowledge is required. Uh, each week in your handout, you'll know what passage we're going to talk about next week, and I encourage you to read ahead to be more prepared and get more out of it, but there's no mandatory homework. I'm not going to put anybody on the spot. I'm not going to quiz you on your Bible knowledge. Now, many of you will ask questions and, and contribute to the discussion and make clear how much Bible knowledge you have, but we want everyone to feel comfortable being here, uh, to, that this is a place to ask questions. Uh, if you ask questions, I'll do my best to answer. I'll throw it out to the knowledgeable people in this group. And then I will also get back to you the next week if there's something that we don't feel like we've got to a satisfactory conclusion on. I do want you to encourage kind of everybody else you know in the church, if they're not already here, either building somebody up you know, through youth group or, or team kid, but they find a come and find a place on Wednesday night, if they're not working, if they're able to be here, to be built up in one of the three Bible studies we're going to have on Wednesday nights for adults, because there's a lot of good things. So I do want to um, put a recommendation towards, uh, as well, the Grace Bible study that Niall is teaching in the conference room. Uh, there, we talked, we talked about Grace this summer on Sunday mornings, and here he's going to go even deeper into Grace and understanding, and I think most importantly, right, understanding that it's it's, there's so much more, so much richer than we sometimes think of it. We often think of it as a very basic transaction. Okay, I got it some grace, I'm going to heaven, but, but grace is something we experience all of our lives, and so I think he's going to be looking at ways to apply the grace that we receive, uh, and that's a great place. If you look at some of these other categories from Paul, I think that's probably a great place to work on growing to that spiritual maturity, that spiritual adulthood. So uh, I will not be offended if you go try Niles next week and then kind of decide where uh, the right place is for you in this season. But I don't, I don't want you to think, well, you got to come here, uh, because that's going to be a, an excellent study. So what are we going to be doing? We are going to be talking about Luke uh, until Christmas, uh, and then after Christmas we'll switch to John. Uh, last year we talked about Matthew and Mark, <clears throat> and a little bit of Luke. And what I have done is uh, we've wound up organizing kind of this Encounter Jesus Wednesday night program over a course of about a two-year program. We talked about Matthew and Mark last year. We'll talk about Luke and John this year. And of course, if you've read the Gospels a good bit, you know that there's considerable overlap between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, areas where they give some, you know, talk about kind of the same topics. And so uh, we kind of chose the topics uh, as I worked through, played things out over last year and then this year. I'm trying to choose topics so that we don't repeat a major area or a major passage uh, between last year and this year, or between two Gospels in the same year. We want to kind of keep it fresh in that regard. Um, 
So you might ask in the course of what we're going to be talking about in Luke, we're going to be focusing this fall and, and into December on uh, the early life of Jesus. And then uh, a lot of the parables that appear in Luke, uh, they're uniquely in Luke. Uh, other things you may say, well, why are you going to stop your study of Luke right as he arrives in Jerusalem and not talk about uh, the Passion Week, the, you know, his crucifixion and resurrection? Well, we talked about that extensively this spring, and all the messages were, all the teachings were recorded. Uh, I think the link is currently not available online, but I'm going to work with Debbie when she gets back so that um, if you want to go back and look at anything we did with Matthew and Mark, it's available online, or will be online. And so that's where we're going to focus Luke here on early life and ministry, uh, and then those unique parables. Most of what we do after the first two or three weeks is going to be taught in the context of one of the parables that is shared by Luke. So along the way, again, most of you were here last year, but uh, along the way we try to highlight the big ideas. You know, each gospel writer was inspired by the Holy Spirit to share not just the events of Jesus' life, but particular events, chosen days and, and, and moments that bring out some really big key ideas and themes about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And that's part of why I think we are gifted with four Gospels, is to help us see these different themes and get a richer picture of Jesus, right? Because here he is, you know, the infinite and eternal Son of God, uh, captured in four Gospels. Um, and so it helps us to have the four different Gospels inspired, uh, emphasizing some different ideas and themes uh, so we just get a, a better, fuller, richer picture of our Savior. Um, when I talk about the themes, a lot of people are like, well, why are you talking about themes? Yeah, whatever. Uh, so it makes it sound like lit class. My goal is not to make this sound like lit class. Um, but when we have an awareness of the, of the things that were really pressed on these gospel writers by the Holy Spirit, to really bring out these qualities of Jesus that emphasize, you know, this area or his passion, you know, his compassion for the poor or his um, passion for the Gentiles and things like that. When we understand these big themes, I think it helps us appreciate even more the richness of the life of Jesus, the richness of what the gospel writers share with us. And so I just feel like we are better readers. We get more out of it. And tonight's the exception because it's a little bit more upfront lecture on themes and organization and so forth. But most nights, uh, for those who were here before, you know, but most nights we really look at one passage, uh, an extensive passage uh, in context, right? We always deal with our passages in context. We don't just take a verse and run with it. Uh, we want to deal with a whole thought uh, unit of the gospel, kind of focus first and foremost on what does it mean? And that's our emphasis, make sure we really understand what Jesus was saying, what Jesus did, uh, and then work on the application into our life from there. So that's kind of the organization, that's the, the, the kind of the, the vision, if you will. Again, uh, encourage anybody you know in the church, invite people outside the church, because this is meant to be a friendly place, uh, a good place for people to just see Jesus in action. All right, that's our goal, to really encounter him, uh, what was important to him, what was on his heart, uh, what he you know, was passionate about, what he was rebuking people about, and so forth. 
We're going to talk a little bit about Luke. And again, I promise, yes, this one's kind of a little bit lecturely. I like to give the upfront some overview on the gospel, and then the rest of the weeks we just dig into passages. Um, but I feel like it's helpful. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but the Gospel of Luke, the third gospel, um, very early, strong, basically unanimous historical attribution to Luke, who was a companion of Paul. Paul calls him the physician. Not a lot of, um, I mean, that's kind of what that is. The Gospel of Luke is kind of cool in one way, and one that's kind of unique, because it's written as part of a two-volume set with the book of Acts. Luke wrote Luke, and then the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts, and he really kind of views them, if you read them, and if you read them close together, if you were to say, sit down one day, read the Gospel of Luke for a few hours, and sit down the next day, read the book of Acts for a few hours, you see that there are key themes pulling across both books, and, and ideas, and things that are introduced over here in the Gospel, and then they, they're fulfilled in, in the book of Acts, and so they're really a two-volume set. It's a two-volume set that comprises about 25% of the New Testament, so it is a substantial read if you sit down and do that in two days. Um, but they are, you can think of them as telling one story. Of course, in the bigger picture, the Bible as a whole, 66 books, but it's one story. Well, here within Luke and Acts, you see two volumes, one story. Uh, if you like the Lord of the Rings, if you've ever read the introduction, J.R.R. Tolkien says, you know, I know it's in three books, but think of it as one story in three volumes, and I kind of feel like Luke is doing the same thing here. It's one story in two volumes. Luke and, and the introduction of, of Jesus and the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then the, whole, the, the book of Acts, which is really very much about uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. So what was his purpose in writing the Gospel of Luke? Because this also, I like it when they tell us what the purpose is. Luke and John both tell us why they wrote their Gospel. Uh, I think that's worth knowing because then as we read the Gospel of Luke, it kind of helps us understand why are we studying this. Luke gives us a really good reason. It's right at the beginning. It's chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He gives us his purpose for writing this Gospel. And I think this is one that says, uh, whatever else we do with the book of Luke, we need to do with this in mind. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's the purpose of the Gospel of Luke. It's so that Theophilus, and of course us as people who read the Gospel of Luke, can have certainty about the things we've taught, we've been taught. You see, he set out to write an organized, you know, assembly, an organized history of the life of Jesus. He's, from what he's saying, he is taking some existing accounts, both written and oral, and he is evaluating them, making sure that they are high quality. He's talking to witnesses, he's talking to ministers, and then he's organizing it in what he calls an orderly account so that we can have certainty about the things we've been taught. And I think that's great because we are a faith that 
while we rely on faith, we have eyewitness accounts, we have organized histories to make sure that we're not just people passing on you know, hearsay, well, he said this, and then he said that, and somebody else said that. No, this is the organized account of what was said and heard and experienced by those first witnesses and ministers so that we and those who come behind us and those who came before us can have certainty about the things we've been taught. And I think that's pretty exciting. He talks about his orderly account, and what I would say is that when he talks about an orderly account, he organizes quite often by theme and by geography over chronology. He's not always strictly chronological beginning to end. Uh, That doesn't make it disorderly. It just means that his order is largely thematic and geographical. I think it's also orderly in that it's clear he is critically evaluating sources. He's going to the best witnesses he can find. He is making sure that only the true things make it in. Of course, he has the inspiration of the Holy Spirit working to guide this. He's also orderly in that he puts all the events of Luke in act very much into the Roman historical context. If you look, he just puts lots of small things all through the gospel and then even more so in the book of Acts into the historical context because it's all about that having certainty, right? He's not making some vague, you know, mythological fairy tale. He's saying when it was this, when this person was this office, And when this person was this office, and when this person was over here in this office, he has all these markers to help us know, to build our confidence, to say, yes, this is a great historical account. We can be certain of the things we've been taught. The book of Luke is organized fairly simply into about five sections. I mean, you can always organize a book in lots of different ways. Um, But the one that seems most common and and is pretty straightforward, uh, particularly as you read the the gospel and you say, well, what's it about? Um, It begins with the birth, two births. The births of John and Jesus. That's your first two chapters. All right, then there's preparation for ministry. Which is chapter 3 till chapter 4, I think 13. All right, then there's Jesus in Galilee. Which is his early ministry. Then we have Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. That we did a lot of sermons about in the spring. Which runs from chapter 9 to chapter 19. And then we have Jesus in Jerusalem, death and resurrection. is the rest of the book. 
that's why you see kind of a, a geographic, when I say orderly, kind of geographically, it, it, he's kind of organized the material in these um, broad movements and broad regions to help us understand it better. And then as I mentioned, uh, I just the last thing before we kind of get into a little bit tonight, and then we'll continue more in depth in, in the Word next week, uh, just the major themes of Luke. And you've got them on your handout because, again, each gospel highlights some different themes that help us together, taken together, um, get a richer picture of our Savior. And probably the number one theme that you are going to see throughout all of Luke, and it's the unifier with Acts as well, but uh, it really just brings the whole book together, is salvation for all peoples. Not all people. He's not teaching universalism. Peoples, right? Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles who put faith in him. This we see a lot. This idea of salvation and then healing and, and that idea of both physical and spiritual healing, these are intertwined the way Luke presents them. We see just over and over again this idea of the salvation and that the salvation is made available to all who will follow Jesus. And there's a particular emphasis in, in Luke, and we see it in all the Gospels, but Luke really emphasizes a lot to help us understand Jesus' compassion and care for the outcasts, for the Samaritans, for the Gentiles, for the tax collectors, for women, and particularly immoral women, for thieves, right? All these kinds of, of negative figures, the lessers of society, if you will, they are the ones who are painted in a better light. Those are the ones that Jesus is passionate about, uh, or compassionate for, rather, I should say. Whereas those who are privileged, the graders in society, the ones who, who kind of are supposed to be the high-status ones are painted very clearly, right, in their self-righteous sin. They think they're coasting into heaven on the, on the heels of their birthright as Jews. Uh, so that's number one theme, salvation for all and healing. Salvation for all peoples uh, and healing. Then the work of the Holy Spirit is huge in Luke. So there are 18 references in the Gospel of Luke, then there are 57 references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. So the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, and again, we'll, we'll get in a little bit into the preparation for the, the birth of Jesus tonight, and we'll see just how many times the Spirit gets mentioned right off the bat, just in the first two chapters of Luke. Praying, prayer and praise. We see Jesus pray a lot in the Gospel of Luke. We see a lot of people pray in the Gospel of Luke. We see a lot of people burst into praise in the Gospel of Luke. There is an emphasis on, on prayer life, uh, on teaching on how to pray, uh, on Jesus' prayer life that we see in Luke. And we're going to bring some of that out this fall. Poverty and wealth. Nobody really likes a preacher who talks about, about money. Jesus talked a lot about money. And Luke shares a lot of those teachings with us. He talks a lot about money and the negative influence when we, you know, lust after it and obsess over it, put it in the wrong place in our life. Not that money is evil inherently, but rather that it has a tendency to wind up in the wrong place in our life. Um, this is something that Jesus taught extensively on. 
And it is something that is clearly on Luke's heart, and he has been inspired to share with us because we just see this language so often about the poor and people who are poor um, versus the people who are wealthy. The kingdom of God, you know that's a theme near and dear to my heart. Uh, he talks in terms of the new exodus that was prophesied by Isaiah, if you will, back last year. We talked a good bit about how a number of the events in Jesus' life are really basically pointing to the fact that his presence and his, the redemption that we received through him is a second exodus. It's the greater exodus, where we are redeemed, where instead of being redeemed out of Egypt, we are redeemed out of sin. Being led into the promised land, we are led into the perfection of the kingdom of God. And then I would also say we have to, we can't ignore the fact that Luke, whether he calls it out as a specific theme or it's just a, something he makes sure we see a lot, just the sovereign rule of God over history. And the way God has intervened specifically at this time um, to bring Jesus into the world, to a, how he arranged everything in the world to be ready to receive him, if you will, uh, and just kind of all throughout the Gospel of Luke. Questions or comments? So far in that. Because otherwise what I'd like to do is just get started with a little bit of chapter 1. And then wherever we get to tonight, we'll break. And then next week we'll wrap that and, and, and dig into chapter 1 and chapter 2. Luke begins uh, with this interwoven birth narratives. Right? He interweaves John the Baptist and Jesus. And we see kind of parallel events. You have a Gabriel announcing, you know, first that, that John the Baptist is going to be born. Then you have Gabriel announcing that Jesus is going to be born, right? And then Mary and Elizabeth uh, spend time together. Then we have the birth of John the Baptist. And we have the birth of, of Jesus. And so he, he interweaves these two events. And, and it helps us understand that, that scripturally, these two are a pair, right? The book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi said, there would be a prophet like Elijah who was going to come and prepare the way for the Lord. And so Luke is helping us understand by bringing these two interwoven narratives the ways that, that God is, is making this prophecy come to be, where John the Baptist is indeed that prophet like Elijah who will prepare the way for the Lord. And then, of course, Jesus himself is the Lord. And so this is, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a neat parallel. Uh, so what I want to do is, is I'm going to read, I'm not going to do a lot of talking, because I really think this is a passage I, want us, I always want us to just enjoy, this passage. I'm going to start in chapter 1 uh, about the birth of, of John the Baptist being foretold. So it runs from chapter 1, verse 5, to, to verse 25. So I'm not going to give a lot of commentary, because again, I just think, you know, let's see the way that God is directly acting at this point in human history. Since the angel Gabriel to make the announcement that this, this thing that, is, that, is, that people have been waiting for for centuries was about to happen. The prophet was coming. The Messiah was coming. But what we're going to see, and I will point this out as we go along, we're going to already see several of those themes I mentioned brought out, and you're going to see right away. In chapter 1, Luke is already highlighting things like, like the, the, you know, the, the reversal of fortune for those who are kind of downcast in society. Things like the sovereignty of God and his direct action in history. Right? We're going to see things like prayer being emphasized. We're going to see the Holy Spirit working several times in the first two chapters. And so 
Let's just go ahead and, 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 and read and, and enjoy the Word of God. So Luke writes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, and there's that attention to historical detail, making sure we always know where this story fits in historical context. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now we're going to see, particularly as we get to the end of the narrative, right? They, these, this fine older couple, are in one sense the lessers of society because they're infertile. Right? There is a shame in this culture associated with not being able to have children, and we'll see it when we get to verse twenty-five, because Elizabeth is ecstatic, if you will, about this baby, because it is taking away the shame. So we're already we're seeing that notion of, of the reversal of, of the shame, because these, are, these, are, these righteous folks are, are living where people are kind of viewing them as some way broken. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, being chosen by lot in those days, that was how you determine, that was one way they determined the will of God. So we already see here that action of the sovereignty of God because he was arranging for Zechariah to be in the temple where Gabriel was going to meet him. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So there we have that beginning of that emphasis on prayer. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So here's this action of the Holy Spirit. And again, we sometimes take the Holy Spirit for granted because as believers, we each have the Holy Spirit indwelling us from the time we believe. But in these days, the Holy Spirit was not a common presence in people's lives. Right? There were extraordinary times in the Old Testament Scripture when the Spirit would come upon someone. And for, for some people like David, he, the Spirit was with them for many years. For others, it was a brief thing. But here... We see the Spirit already at work in this baby. And we'll see this probably next week based on our, our timeline, but we'll see this that when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and the baby leaps in her womb. Right? So there's already fulfillment of this particular prophecy from Gabriel. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Right? This is, I love this next part. It's just such a, like, this is the, this is the intervention of God in history to make this moment. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So there we see that reversal of Elizabeth's shame. I want to do real quick, I know we're going to run, eh, I do want to, while we're here, I want to just do the parallel account of the announcing of uh, Jesus' birth coming, right? Because this, Luke is giving us these two parallel accounts, these intertwined stories of miraculous conceptions, angelic announcements. And so just listen. In the, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This, by the way, is our first entry of that great theme of salvation, because the very name of Jesus means Yahweh saves. The very essence and nature of Jesus is to give, bring salvation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit, here's the Holy Spirit again, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now we'll pick this up next week. And we can always go back and revisit it. We may revisit, revisit parts, dig a little bit into it. But I just wanted to, to get this out here again to start to see this weaving together of, of God's miraculous work in salvation offered through these events that he is directly making happen. Any quick questions or comments are right at 7.30, so I don't want to make the choir late, amongst other things. And you can always come and ask me later, but if not, let me go ahead and close us in prayer real quick. Heavenly Father, what a marvelous thing to consider. That in the midst of... all sorts of disobedience to you, in the midst of all sorts of sin, your passion for your glory, for the restoration of your creation, for the people you formed in your image, was so great, your love so tremendous, 
that you sent your Son into this world. But as we consider these announcements, the very purpose of Jesus to bring salvation, the purpose of John to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, let us not lose our awe at this miracle. Let us not become overly familiar with it. Let us truly appreciate what you have done here, what Jesus has done here. And let that experience of grace fill us with joy and a passion for your world and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.